Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. thought I would give a bit of an intro. Um, I have been involved in a number of connect groups here at Christchurch. I am currently uh, working with our young adults here um, at the Central Service who are a charming bunch. Uh, and so I've been in London for about five years. Um, I currently work as a child protection social worker in North London. And uh, after five years of living north of the river, I have recently taken the plunge, uh, succumbed to gravity, and I've moved to South London. I know. It was a really big step. Um, so I'm now hanging out in the Greenwich area, which is all kinds of fun. Uh, hanging out in Blackheath, getting to know that. Um, so it kind of feels like a whole new London and a whole new season of life, which is really great. Now, over summer, we have been looking at a series called The Summer of Love. And we've been going through the book of 1 John. And if you have been here at Christchurch for any period of time, you might have realized that we love community. We think that it is really really important. And so we chose to look at this book to see what it says about how we can be transformed to love one another well. And so this morning we are going to be looking at uh, 1 John 3 uh, verses 11 to 24. So I'm going to read the passage to us before we get started. It says this, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, the book of 1 John is a letter uh, believed to have been written, funnily enough, by a guy called John. And, uh, but this is not just any old John. This is also the author of John's Gospel one of the four accounts that we have in the New Testament, which tell us about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's highly likely that the John who we see writing this letter is the very same John that Jesus called his beloved disciple and who we see at significant moments throughout Jesus' life. 
as Joseph said to us when he spoke earlier this summer, this was a guy who knew what he was talking about. So, the letter is credible, but who was it written to and for what purpose? Well, the letter was written to church communities that John knew. His language is one of intimate acquaintance and kind of shared experience. And it's likely that they were written to churches in the Roman province of Asia and that John had some responsibility over those churches. And he was writing them to them at a time when they had been receiving some aggressive criticism from a group of people who had decided that they had a more superior way of knowing God. So we can therefore think about this letter as both reassurance and encouragement to the church in the face of feeling quite shaken about what was being said about them in quite a difficult circumstance. I think it's quite important that we read the challenges presented here and some of the answers offered through this lens if we're going to understand what John is saying about love and about God. So in this passage, John is writing to remind a community of believers that they are to remember what has brought them together and the message which they chose to believe. It goes on to say that this message of love is to be be displayed in action and should therefore be shown in really practical ways. And it concludes by assuring its readers that to love well is to please God, and that in turn draws us closer into a relationship with him. Now, uh, in my family, we have two pet cats, and uh, one summer my family went away, leaving me in charge of the cats. Now, I I like animals, um, and I like these cats, but clearly my mum either thought that I wasn't quite affectionate enough, or she was doubting my memory. Anyway, she wrote on a giant piece of paper, feed the cats, and put this on the kitchen table. Now, I thought I was perfectly capable of remembering to feed the cats, and for the first few days we were doing quite well. But a few days in, uh, a couple of late evenings, a long day at work, And I think it's safe to say that I was maybe not giving the cats the attention that they deserved. I think the fairy creatures were quite grateful for the reminder note, and I was as well. You see, I think that there is always a reason why we need to be reminded of something. If John is reminding the local church about the message that they have heard, surely our question should be, what is that message? John is one of those writers who loves to use common images to illustrate his point. He will regularly contrast light and dark, life and death. And in this passage, he uses two figures, Cain and Christ. And he uses these to remind us of the message. First, we have Cain. And Cain stands as the archetypal bad guy. His story comes at the start of history, where he kills his brother Abel because Abel was good and Cain was not. Cain's life is one defined by violence and aggression and hate. And sometimes when we read the Bible, some of the images it uses can be hard to understand. But for John's audience, they would have been well acquainted with the story of Cain and Abel, who were the children of Adam and Eve, and they would therefore have recognized that the strife between these two brothers was symptomatic of Cain having turned away from God's intended way of life. And then second, we have Christ. And Christ is presented as the very antithesis of Cain. Instead of taking the life of his brother, Christ lays down his life for his brother. And not just his literal brother, but for anyone who chooses to follow him. 
Christ's death marks an end to the strife that we see in Cain. But for what purpose does Jesus lay down his life? Now, I have a younger sister, and over the years, I think it would be fair to say that we have got frustrated with one another. I'm the older sibling, and I've always thought that I was in the right. And uh, my family will tell a story of how a few months after she was born, I asked a very you know, reasonable question of, can we take her back now, please? <laughs> and over the years, we have fallen out over anything from shared clothes or stolen clothes, uh, to broken possessions, uh, who is going to sit in the front seat of the car. But at the end of the day, she is one of my favourite people, and I love her very much. That being said, Kane's behaviour is something that I can find hard to identify with, and I think that perhaps it's difficult for us to understand it in the same context in which John was writing about it. Yet perhaps Kane's attitude is not as far from our own as we might like. This passage uses quite serious language to indicate that to hate is like having chosen to kill. And this principle is reminiscent of one of Jesus' most famous sermons, where he declared that when it comes to the state of our hearts, actually what we think and feel on the inside is just as serious as what we engage with on the outside. In this framework, hate is synonymous with murder, lust synonymous with adultery. You kind of get the picture. When the standard of what is good is based not just on what we do, but on what is going on inside our heads and our hearts, I wonder who of us here could say that they are without fault. I know that I couldn't. I think the story of Cain also raises really important questions about justice. Cain murders his brother, which is no small crime. And there are serious consequences to that. You see, I don't think that the Bible shies away from difficult questions about justice and about wrongdoing. And maybe you're here today and you have some really big questions about the Christian faith. Firstly, can I just say how welcome you are here, how much we love that you have chosen to be with us this morning. You are more than welcome. And secondly, we are more than happy to answer any questions that you might have. Over time, I have had to wrestle with what I have thought about Christianity. Um, it's not something that I grew up with, and I have had to think carefully about all sorts of questions. I still do. But we want this family to be a place where we can question together, where we can wrestle with our answers and our uncertainty. So if that is you, you are so welcome here, and we would love you to make this your home. So... If you read the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis, you will find that once Cain has murdered his brother, God confronts Cain for his treacherous act. Cain's punishment is to be banished from the land. And it uses these words. It says that he is to wander restlessly without the presence of God for the remainder of his days. And this is because God could not allow Cain to remain in his presence when there was blood on his hands. I have to wonder, what did Cain's life look like? And yet, despite that, it was never God's intention that his people would be far from him. And the whole arc of scripture is this beautiful narrative of how God draws near to us again and again. But if we all have Cain-like tendencies within us, how can we experience the kind of intimacy with God, which is talked about in the very earliest accounts of how God interacts with men and with women. 
There had to be a way to deal with our Cain-like character. John points out in this letter that this is done by and through Jesus. Jesus is the only person in all of history to have had no Cain-like qualities to be dealt with because he was both fully God and fully human. In being without blemish, he was able to commune with God and experience God in a way that no one else could. Yet Jesus faced a criminal's death. He was hung from a cross. He was mocked. And if you read the gospel accounts of what happened, or perhaps if you have only heard a little of the Christian story, you might well wonder how this death could ever be within the purposes of God. Yet at the cross, Jesus freely surrendered his life, despite having committed no crime. And in doing so, he offers an exchange, his perfect record and capacity to know God, with a separation that defined Cain's exile from God's presence, and also our own. In laying his life down, Jesus gave the means by which any restless wanderer can find their way home. The book of Philippians puts it like this. It says that he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here then is our contrast. One is selfish, the other selfless. Cain takes life and Christ offers it. But what is Jesus' motivation for such sacrifice? Was it simply for him to tidy everything up because things had got kind of messy and a bit wrong? Was it to make himself look extra holy? No, actually, Scripture says that it was for love that Jesus chose to die. Only love would have pushed him to the ends to which he went. And it was love for all of those restless wanderers that have made choices which mean that they could not know and enjoy the presence of God. John then writes this letter as a means of reminding his readers of the message of love. In the face of great difficulty and criticism, he wants the church to remember what love is. So, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means two things. I think firstly, we are invited to remember love. And secondly, I think that we are also invited to respond to that love. There is one sentence in this whole passage which it seems to hinge on, and it says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. How do we know what love is? We know it in Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to knowing something, what is our process of learning? Well, usually we will look at it, we'll examine it, we will ask questions of it, maybe seek to understand. When I was a child, I was the kid who was keeping ladybirds in raisin boxes and snails in Tupperware. Um, I was fascinated by anything that moved, and I was desperate to understand. What can I say? I didn't grow up in London. Um, but I think that we look for evidence to back up what we're being told. We look to verify, to validate, because we want to know what is happening. 
And John does the very same thing when he talks about love. He encourages us to look for evidence, to test out whether it is true. And he says that there is evidence of love in the manner in which Christ dies. And he also says that there should be evidence of love in the way that we live. In my job as a social worker, I work with a whole range of children and young people. And one of my favorite things is to learn how they respond to love. And I work with kids all the way from 0 to 18. And um, with some of the really young ones, it might be something like they fall over and they get picked up and comforted. Or some of our slightly older kids, it can be something as simple as watching them light up when they are praised for their homework. Or some of our older teenagers, it can be something like them having a powerful conversation with someone who is agreeing to listen to them. But what I see time and time again is that love changes things. Whether it is in providing comfort or encouragement or insight, love has a power to turn situations around. And I think, if we're honest, that is true for us as well. Love has the power to make us feel secure and settled. Love has the power to lift our heads. Love has the power to draw restless wanderers home. In this passage, John calls his readers to remember love. He speaks into the middle of their life uncertainty, and he declares that they are to recall all that they have known and seen and tasted of love. For John, the evidence of love is displayed on the cross. It is this fixed and unchanging symbol of love that we are to remember. But what causes us to forget love, as John seems to think that we might? Well, in this passage, I think that he gives us two reasons. I think that he suggests that in difficult circumstances, and when we have a sense of failure, we can forget love. When our circumstances are complicated, confusing or overwhelming, it can be easy to lose sight of where we have come from and what is important. Perhaps you are here today and you are just feeling plain tired. Maybe you are feeling overwhelmed, overlooked, abandoned because of whatever life has thrown at you this week. All of these things can shift our gaze from love. And in doing so, it cuts us off from the very source of life and energy and purpose which we need. But in this passage, the community of believers also appear to be struggling with their own sense of conscience. These verses say, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. What then do these verses mean? Well, commentators have debated about some of the unusual language used here. But what they agree on is that this whole passage is about reassurance. And the explanation which I think is most credible is this. The community of believers have known love. And they know what it is to live lives of love. And yet they are confronted with a great difficulty. Although they can practice love, they do not always do so perfectly. 
their cane-like tendencies surface, and love fails to come naturally in every situation. It seems that when they look at themselves, they are worried that they have either not known love or not known God. I wonder if any of us can identify with that experience, knowing that our response should be love, and yet finding it nearly impossible to do. One of my favourite writers is Charlotte Bronte, and in her famous novel, Jane Eyre, she writes this. A wanderer's repose or a sinner's reformation should never depend on a fellow creature. Men and women die. Philosophers falter in wisdom and Christians in goodness. If anyone you know has suffered and erred, let him look higher than his equals for strength to amend and solace to heal. Where in this passage in John then is the reassurance for the wanderer, the sinner, one who has suffered or erred. I think that as Bronte says, we cannot look to our fellow creatures for reassurance. In fact, our reassurance comes from remembering how we know love. And our encouragement comes when we realize that we have the capacity to convince ourselves to choose to live in accordance with that love. Commentators suggest that these verses about belonging to truth are a reminder that when we know love, we are able to convince ourselves to act in accordance with that. By remembering what love looks like, we are able to convince ourselves to choose love time and time again. Uh, When I left school, I spent some time working in a nursing home. And it was a home for uh, the elderly who had dementia. Um, And I came across a couple there. And um, the wife had been in the nursing home for a number of years. Um, She was elderly. She had very serious dementia. And as a result, she could no longer move, um, had great difficulty speaking, and would uh, become quite aggressive because the way that dementia had changed her personality. And her husband would come in every single morning. At 10 o'clock on the dot, he would arrive, dressed smartly in a suit and pressed trousers, and he would give her her morning cup of tea. And uh, he would come in, he would feed her tea, he would read the paper, he would play the radio, he would share family news, put up pictures of their grandchildren. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. He was also elderly, and uh, it made me wonder what it was that he saw that gave him the courage to come in every single day in the middle of situations where his wife was gravely ill, would sometimes throw tea at him, would sometimes shout. He didn't get a lot out of it. And as I've been thinking about that, I'm reminded that actually when we remember love, we can choose to act in accordance with the love that we have known. And for this couple that I saw, that I watched over a period of months, I think that that is what they had grasped. They could remember what it looked like in the good times, which meant that they could act in love in the bad times too. I wonder what would happen in our friendship groups, in our families, in our church, if we were to be those who remember love and convince ourselves to choose love on a daily basis. I think that sometimes when it comes to love, we think that we know what we are meant to do. 
But I wanted us to start here. That when we see loving action, it can only ever consistently come out of a place of knowing what real love looks like. You see, we are not those who are terrified into love out of obligation or duty. No, we are those who are compelled to love out of great gratitude and joy. So, if we are compelled to love, what does that mean? And what should it look like? In teaching love, the model given throughout Scripture is Christ. And the response of love here is to lay down one's life. In John 15, 13, we find that Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. But in the middle of 21st century London, what does it realistically mean to lay down one's life? Well, this passage gets really practical. It basically says that if there is anyone within the community that is in need, laying down one's life is about meeting that need with whatever you have available. I think that not many of us are likely to be called to literally give our lives for our friends. But I wonder, as a family, how we can get better at meeting one another's needs as an expression of gratitude for the love that we have known. And as I was thinking about this, one thing struck me. We need to live close enough to one another to see each other's needs. We need to be in close enough relationships to be able to see what is going on. How can we see need, meet need, if we don't see it? In a church the size of Christchurch, in a city like London, it can be so easy to feel lost in a crowd. We don't want that to happen here. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people to be part of connect groups. In all honesty, it is also one of the reasons why I've moved from North to South London so I can invest in community. I can honestly say that in my time in London, the relationships that I have had here have transformed my life. So, firstly, we need to be in close enough relationships that we can see need. And secondly, I think that we need to learn to see people as they really are. When I read about how Jesus served people, I am consistently struck by the compassion with which he loves them. It is as if he sees beyond their circumstances, beyond their restless wanderings, to who they were really meant to be. One of my favorite stories comes in the book of Luke, where it describes how a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years approaches Jesus because she has faith that he can heal her. And in the middle of this big, bustling crowd of people, she reaches out and touches the hem of his cloak. And it says that Jesus immediately stops, noticing that power has gone out from him. And then it says this, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him, and how she had been instantly healed. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. She could not go unnoticed. Something in Jesus' manner meant that she had been seen. In a culture where she would have been shunned and shamed for her condition, 
Her interaction with Jesus gives her courage to come out of the shadows and to speak in front of a huge group of people and to declare what has happened to her. What would our city look like if every single shunned and shamed person went unnoticed? What would it look like if we were a church known for loving people like that? You see, when we remember the love that we have been shown, we are compelled to love with the same expansive and vibrant and creative love that has been shown to us. So we are to be close enough to see need. We are to see people as they really are. And finally, we need to know what we can offer. Love responds to need. But is any one of us capable of responding to every need? I think it would be fair to say that we are a bit of a motley crew here at Christchurch. We are not all superheroes. We are not all capable of doing everything. I will not be joining the worship band. But I do think that every single person here in this room has something that they bring to the table. Perhaps you are the person who is great at making jokes allowing people to feel relaxed in your presence. Maybe you are great at cooking. Maybe you are a great baker. I have seen a lot of cake downstairs today. Maybe you are the person who can host people for dinner and make them feel like they have a home in the city. Maybe you are the person who is able to do technical things. Maybe you are the person who is able to be practical, to drive people around. Whatever it is, we all bring something different to the table. I think that the beauty of the church is found when we are humble enough to recognize that we need one another. Cast the to come back. I think that I have been learning that perhaps we are not all required to do big, grand gestures of love, but rather small and consistent, powerful acts of kindness. Instead of dramatic expressions, fancy words, perhaps we are changed most when we convince ourselves to choose love time and time again. And what happens when we respond in love? The passage concludes by saying that the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. When we think back to Cain and his violence, we can see a life that is defined by death. In contrast, Christ demonstrates to us what it is to be fully alive. For those that for though he surrendered his life, we know that he was raised again three days later. If the consequence of Cain's choices was that he lived a life where he was forced to wander restlessly, the consequences of Christ's choices are that we have the opportunity to live purposefully. In a moment, we are going to sing again, and we're going to offer praise to God. But I would like to finish today by praying for us to remember the love of God, to experience that love ourselves, because it is only from that place that we are able to respond in love wonder if you would all stand and I will pray. Father, 
I thank you that you have loved us from the start. That we were made and formed in love. And that it is to love that we come home. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are with us today. And I pray that you would pour out your love on this place. I thank you that your love transforms us and our lives. And we are believing that it transforms this city as well. We know that we are in need of your love. Father, I pray that for those of us who know that we are not always perfect at giving love, would we remember how you have shown us to love? And I want to pray that we would be a church that chooses love on a daily basis in the midst of trial and difficulty, in the midst of criticism. Would we be known for being those that love well? Holy Spirit, would you draw near, I pray. We thank you that you are so good, that it is in you that we find our life and our hope and our purpose and meaning. We thank you this morning that you are so good to us and we praise your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.